this week on the Back Table Podcast. Um, what we really need to be doing, of course, is training the people on the ground so that our, our impact is really an exponential impact and not a linear one. You know, we can go there and we can do cases, but in the end, you know, you benefit only a very small number of people that way. Whereas if you go there and you train them and you have them doing cases, even if it's things like biopsies and drainages um, and nephrostomies and cholecystostomies, those things are, you know, when we, once we train them, um, they, they can hit the ground running pretty quickly. Um, as long as we can also figure out, of course, the uh, supply chain and, and getting them the, the materials. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things IR. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, our app, or Spotify. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. Today's episode is sponsored by RADPAD. RADPAD was developed by physicians for physicians, providing clinically proven radiation protection during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See RADPAD.com for more information. Contact info at RADPAD for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And let them know you heard it on the Backtable podcast. Today, I'm excited to welcome my friend, Dr. Stephen Hunt from the University of Pennsylvania to discuss his volunteer work with RADAID and specifically IR for Nigeria. Thank you, Stephen, for sharing your Sunday with us. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for having me back, Michael. Uh, so I mean, how did you first get involved with the volunteer opportunity you're doing in Nigeria? Sure. So, and when? So, um, you know, I've been doing some international uh, IR development for a few years now. Um, and have been to a few, a few countries and really seen the birth of interventional radiology in, in a number of places. One of the first that really, um, really sparked my, my enthusiasm towards this was in Nepal um, when I went to their first uh, Nepalese interventional radiology uh, meeting, uh, which was back in 2016, so about three years ago. Yeah, I remember uh, you, that, you, that was when I was a fellow. Right. And so I, I had spent a few weeks over there and we, me and some other radiologists were traveling around and, and kind of doing an assessment of their radiology facilities um, and working with their health minister to, uh, to sort of come up with uh, a written assessment of, of how to move forward with development of radiology in their country. Because their country, uh, similar to Nigeria, is at that stage of development where it just makes sense that they're moving out of um, – uh, the level of, of, of economic development that it makes sense to bring in these more advanced uh, medical technologies and where a lot more of the population is demanding access to more advanced uh, healthcare. And so it made sense. And it just, it, it really was exciting to me to watch as they brought back some folks from abroad who had trained in Singapore and elsewhere. Um, and they brought in folks from India um, and just really got together a group, a core group of people, along with, with a lot of enthusiastic folks who did not know IR, but had trained in some basic IR procedures within Nepal. Um, and to see that whole form. And now that that has bur- burgeoned into, a, you know, a real focal group of dedicated interventional radiologists within Nepal, um, both in Kathmandu and in some of the other cities in Nepal. Um but to kind of set the stage for Nigeria, I mean, you know, here in the United States, we have, uh, you know, close to, no one's sure of the exact number, but close to about 6,000 interventional radiologists, somewhere in the 5,000 to 6,000 range. 
And that's for a population of 300 million. So you're looking at about one IR per 50,000 or so. Um, and in Nigeria, uh, you know, you've got basically, even if you count everybody who's doing a part-time, less than five practicing interventional radiologists. Um, so, you know, at the most, you might say there's one per 40 million people, you know. So we've got a lot of work to do. You know, even if you were just to get up to the United States numbers, which everyone thinks there's just simply not enough interventional radiologists in the United States, you'd have to have 4,000 interventional radiologists in Nigeria right now. Um, but, uh, but in addition to the specifically around IR, there's just a huge need for, you know, any kind of surgery interventions and any, any, any of these kind of, uh, um, uh, you know, medical care there. And as the population emerges into a low to middle income economy, um, you know, the people are really looking towards healthcare as being one of their big uh, expenditures of budget. Um, so about $15 billion is estimated to leave Nigeria every year. Uh, headed abroad to seek medical care. Um, so an example I'll give is, you know, a person wants to get a chest port. Right now there, there are very few people in, uh, uh, in uh, Nigeria um, who are placing chest ports and definitely no interventional radiologist um, uh, with the exception of now Dr. Ninalao, who I'll come back to. He's, he's now operating out of Lagos. But in any case, what those folks have to do is, you know, go abroad and get one. And so, Commonly, if they'll come to the United States, people with means, they'll fly over, they'll pay my hospital $15,000 to put a $189 device into their body yeah. um, by, by virtue of the fact that they don't have uh, the, uh, the trained personnel to do that back home in Nigeria. And obviously, it's an enormous expense and time and, and you know, getting a visa and, and buying the flights and hotels. So it's, you can imagine that's a very inefficient process and, and what just having, just having someone there in the country who can do those kinds of um, very, uh, you know, uh, very routine and basic IR procedures, what a difference that would make. But, you know, in addition to those kind of things, you can think of, you know, abscess drainages and all of the things that we do. Uh, very often there's, there's a huge shortage of surgery around the world. I mean, we're talking about less than half the world with really access to uh, surgery. So you're talking about, you know, three and a half billion, four billion people who really don't have access to, um, uh, to surgical services. And this is the same thing I saw in Nepal. So if someone has, um, you know, trauma, uh, there's no surgeon really there to do an exploratory laparotomy or to stop the bleeding, um, or if they have trauma on their farm, whether it be road accidents or these things. And so for con consequently, uh, you know, accidents are a very high um, very high up on the list of causes of death in these countries, um, as well as things like, you know, abscesses that don't heal and stuff. And so there's a lot that IR can do um, in those uh, situations that could, um, you know, perhaps uh, obviate the need for uh, more, you know, more intensive or more, uh, you know, invasive procedures. So, Stephen, you talked about, um, you know, other you know, needs for other surgical services and things like that. I mean, are, are there other groups of physicians there when, when you're making these trips? Uh, so there are, there are physicians from different organizations. Um, uh, you know, I have, I have met people in, in some of the hospitals, not at UCH, but in other hospitals from, um, for example, Medicine Sans Frontiers and, um, and some organizations like that. Now, now most of them are focused on public health uh, outreach sure. um, and well, vaccination programs. Uh, some of them are doing some uh, some surgical things, but there is there is really no um, global 
organization for um, for meeting the needs of interventional radiology worldwide. And, and that's something I think that we have an opportunity within the interventional radiology community to, to create. Um, now, the organization that we've been working with is RADAID, uh, which is um, which has started to build out um, an interventional radiology um, uh, kind of wing of it uh, with, uh, with under the leadership of Dr. Andrew Kesselman, who's up at, um, up at Cornell. So um, there is a development now within the RAD Aid organization, which is the largest international aid organization for radiology. Um, but like I said, there's no dedicated IR-specific uh, you know, relief organization towards, towards that uh, need. Um, and, uh, and whether we do it together with rad aid or whether we do it through our, you know, individual efforts, I think that, um, there really is this, this opportunity, uh, around the world to make a, a tremendous, uh, tremendous impact. And so, um, what we really need to be doing, of course, is training the people on the ground so that our, our impact is really an exponential impact and not a linear one. You know, we can go there and we can do cases, but in the end, you know, you benefit, only a very small number of people that way. Whereas if you go there and you train them and you have them doing cases, even if it's things like biopsies and drainages um, and nephrostomies and cholecystostomies, those things are, you know, when we, once we train them, um, they, they can hit the ground running pretty quickly. Um, as long as we can also figure out, of course, the uh, supply chain and, and getting them the, the materials. Um, for example, when we went there, you know, some of the cases we did were, biopsies and drainages uh, for the most part. So one of the first cases was uh, a young lady, a 20-year-old, who had a very, very large, um, uh, probably post-tubercular abscess. I mean, we're talking about a very large mass coming out of her side. Um, and when you looked at the imaging, you could tell that she had um, what had started as a pulmonary tuberculous abscess, and then it had gotten into her spine, kind of the POTS disease picture, um, and a large retroperitoneal component, and then extending all the way out into her side. So we drained, you know, the, the superficial component. She had gone around like this for more than 18 months, getting bigger and bigger and, and wasting away and getting very, very ill. Um, so just after draining liters and liters of, you know, pus out of the superficial component, she was significantly better by the next day and then brought her back for, for draining the deeper component under CT guidance. Um, and uh, the plan is once, you know, once she's uh, completely, uh, uh, you know, dry, um, that the, the surgeons are, are willing to, to go back and do kind of a stabilization surgery if necessary for her spine, um, given it's, you know, it's kind of uh, invasive component with that. But the point is, is, you know, just by want of no one being able to do this, the surgeons didn't want to open up a can of worms by just draining the superficial component. And, and so she kind of got really got ignored by the medical system, um, and wasn't able to, to get something done. Another case was actually the, the head of cardiology um, came to us and said, listen, my mother has this very large cyst in her liver, and it's probably a hydatid cyst from a kinococcus, but nobody wants to touch it. And so, um, you know, she, he called her up and she drove four hours down with his dad and, and we drained it. And, and uh, you could see this, the scolites in the, uh, you know, in the, no in the <laughs> we drained it. You would, you would dump alcohol in the bucket and the little, you know, tapeworms would rise to the top. So it was is pretty, you know, obviously not something we see a lot of in the United States, but um, but able to make a tremendous impact. I mean, she immediately expressed, you know, relief from the, the you know the pressure symptoms, and and she's been losing weight and stuff because this thing had gotten so large, you know. Um, but there's, you know, so a lot of a lot of the basic, you know, drainage kind of procedures. But think about something like lung biopsy. You know, 
they have CT scanners. Yeah. They had the they had the biopsy uh, equipment for biopsies, but they didn't know kind of like that that skill of doing it and how you would go about practically doing that. And so we had a day where we brought down a number of patients to get a lung biopsy, and the thoracic surgeon was there. And and I you know I see he had, he had tears in his eyes as he was standing there you know watching the procedure. And I said, well, well how are you doing this now? And he told me, well, I, I look at the CT and then I just I go up to their room and I kind of just blindly stab based on oh my, my map where it was. And then, um, you oh. know, about 40 percent of the time I can get tissue because a lot of people come in with advanced disease. That's you know? impressive. And so I and so I said, well, what about, you know, chest tube? You know, what about the, the he said, well, if they seem really short of breath, I put a chest tube in. But I mean, it's just it's sad that that's the, you know, by want of just people, they, they have the CT scanner, they have the bio, you know, so it's really a matter of teaching them and then, of course, teaching them how to place the chest tube when necessary. So um, we can really make a tremendous difference with just t- teaching very basic IR procedures. And so one of the one of the really cool things that I hadn't planned, but a couple a, a couple residents got involved from um, a resident from um, from out at, at, uh, in L.A., um, one of the L.A. programs and then another resident from up in New York, from Mount Sinai. And so they came over and were teaching. Um, they built some phantoms right on site. So they brought over some gel and built some phantoms right on site and were teaching, um, you know, basic ultrasound guided biopsy and drainage um, using ultrasound. So that was very useful. Um, also with our collaboration with Raddy, they have a, a Mentis, um, one of those simulators. I saw that- on your Instagram. Right, right. So they, so that was fun because obviously we, we weren't we weren't doing any vascular cases because their their fluoroscopy unit was down, but we could show them kind of some of the basics there, and and, and that's more to get them uh, really. It's more to get them excited about the potential. Um, I think it's going to be uh, some time before we can really get um, uh, vascular based cases going. Obviously, they have to have functioning. Um, equipment. So uh, that's a piece of it. But, um, but, but it allowed them to, you know, a lot of them were, were very excited. And, and I mean, radiologists came from all over Nigeria, from every corner of the country to come to this symposium um, and to participate in the lectures and the hands-on. And there was really just a lot of enthusiasm. And that had been the point was really to kickstart, you know, the, um, uh, the, the, the passion within the country and get people really know that there's, 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 you know, brothers and sisters abroad who want to help them. And, you know, at the end of it all, um, one of one of my fellows, Hamed Nilwa, he he has moved back to Nigeria and is he's operating out of Lagos, and so he has brought some of those folks down from UCH to you know do observerships and help him down in Lagos um, and kind of get some more hands-on training within the country. And that's what we need is really to 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 build around the nucleus of of folks there who have that passion and who have that interest and who are willing to train the you know the first generation of interventional radiologists there. Stephen, one of the other things that I saw from your Instagram page, and and I'd like to encourage our listeners to follow it, it's it's IR for Nigeria. It's IR number four Nigeria. Uh, is you know one of the photos showed you reviewing cases for the day with the UCH residents, um, you know, in hospital rounds. What what is a normal day for you like there? So um, when we when we first arrived, because we had had worked so intensively before we got there, uh, we showed up with several page, you know, they had a several page document, five or six pages of cases that they wanted to present um, and see what we could do. Now, a number of them were for transarterial embolization, which we would have loved to do, but, but they didn't have the, sure. you know, the equipment. Um, and some of those folks I think have, have since gone down and been treated by Dr. Neil Lau down in Lagos where he has the, the kind of equipment and stuff. But in any case, those, um, 
just 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 to have them be ready and to show these cases and to have that enthusiasm. Um, so obviously it begins with reviewing cases, uh, possible cases to, to, to do for the day. Um, and then showing them that this is, you know, this is a clinical discipline. So we have to go and round on the folks that we've done procedures on. We have to go and do the, you know, the tube rounds and see how the drainage is going and whether the flushing is working and how well those patients are doing clinically and what are their vital signs and whether they do any labs. And so starting from, what is primarily a diagnostic practice and moving it into interventional practice, there's a whole nother side of medicine there for that. Um, and then I think this idea of if you're really going to build this, it's going to, it's going to require buy-in from the rest of your colleagues in medicine there. And so um, this idea of multidisciplinary rounds. And so we, we, you know, talked about cases with the nephrology attending and, and we actually did some pediatric biopsies with him um, uh, for renal biopsies, you know, just medical renal biopsies. And so, um, and so I think that that's, that's obviously going to be a component is, is trying to engage the folks outside of radiology um, and show them the potential of what interventional radiology can bring to their practice. So that's, um, that's a big uh, potential. Um, and so that was the, so, so the typical day there um, during the course of the conference, of course, was a lot of lectures, but we would do these morning rounds, go over the cases, kind of get things set up. Um, and then go off and do a bunch of lectures in the morning while while the, uh, part of the team was setting up for the cases. And then in the afternoon, we did cases kind of into the evening. Um, and then uh, and so that's that's how the typical day was run there. So you brought up, you know, yet again, another important point, and that's equipment. Uh, you know, what are these these different hospitals need in terms of equipment in order to get started? I mean, we're assuming these people already have a reasonably functioning diagnostic department. Right. So most, most uh, hospitals have ultrasound and uh, CT facilities. Uh, uh, some of them have MR, although it's usually, you know, 0.3 or 0.5 Tesla. And, um, so it's not really high end MR. Um, in some places they have a high end MR, but the problem is that they haven't fully completed the installation or there's, you know, there's just so many logistic hurdles to getting it functioning. Um, think about helium delivery. Think about, you know, all the pieces that go into running a functional MR department. Um, so that's that's an issue. Uh, in terms of fluoroscopy, the better hospitals have, you know, functioning units, whether it be for interventional cardiology um, or uh, just basic fluoroscopy for um, spine procedures and things like that. Um, but many of the public institutions lack that. Um, and so uh, part of it is working with them. You know, I think it's going to be more business development side of working with them for uh, the public-private partnership that many of them are already doing, um, but helping them to, in particular, what you see in a lot of the developing world is the notion of a, um, at the hospital level, of a maintenance contract. You know, it hasn't really been built into their structure. You know, a lot of times a governor, for example, or some politician will get a certain pot of money for getting some new piece of equipment in. Um, but then they, they don't, you know, write that maintenance contract. So it means that a year in when something breaks or, you know, they're not getting the required maintenance, uh, that suddenly you have an albatross of a non-functioning piece of equipment, you know. So um, so that's a, that's a frustration, you know, everywhere I've gone in the world, Vietnam or, or Nepal or Nigeria or wherever. Um, and so I think that that's something that, you know, it's going to be a gradual, it's, it's a culture change and it's reinforcing to them, you know, how critical that is to, to making a functioning department. And you have to, of course, budget for that. And, um, and you know, it's not, a, it's not an easy problem to solve. Um, the other issue, of course, is consumables. Um, 
So most of the consumables we would be used to using over here from Coke or Merit or any of the big purveyors, they're quite expensive um, and uh, from an economic model over there. However, uh, there are markets in, in more developed places like in China and India where they're making those supplies and equipment uh, much cheaper. And so I think that that's where the real opportunity lies. Of course, eventually what you'd like is local manufacturing in Nigeria or in the, you know, in the country of use. Um, but realistically, I think we're going to have a stage where um, most of that stuff is being purchased out of uh, China and India um, and then uh, and then shipped there and uh, and distributed uh, within the continent. So um, I think that that's the that's the stage that we're entering right now. Um, and so it's really once we get the training, it's kind of the chicken and the egg. You know, we, we've got to get the folks trained to use the stuff right now. They're living off of a lot of donations. Um, and I would say that, you know, um, both monetary and supplies donations, um, you know, we, we are willing to accept either, of course, for the IR for Nigeria project. Um, and they can reach out to me, which I know you'll have my contact in the podcast. They can reach out to um, on the IR for Nigeria webpage or through RadAid. Um, all of those are, are, are good uh, venues. And another project I want to highlight, um, kind of a sister project over in Tanzania called Road, uh, uh, Road to IR. So it's number two, Road, the word to IR. And those folks in Tanzania, um, they're, they're a little bit ahead of us in the sense that they have a lot of functioning equipment that the hospitals are working out of uh, Mulambini. And, um, and so they're doing more advanced IR procedures, and they have a lot of teams going over uh, you know, pretty much a, a team almost every, every month. Um, or, 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 you know, constantly have a team there. And, uh, and again, um, they, they're working with uh, both vendors and with other donations and, and, uh, and a lot of that effort is, is built out of Yale. So, um, so the road, the road to IR is another great project that people who are interested in doing um, interventional radiology abroad uh, can look at. So Stephen, one more question I had for you is, uh, you know, in addition to to contributing, you know, monetarily, how could any interested interventional radiologists get involved with this to help? Yeah. So, um, first of all, I'd say that, you know, it's not just about the doctors, obviously we have to train the whole team. And so nurses and technologists, I think that, uh, those are, those are every bit as critical as the docs. Um, because you have to kind of, you know, when you go over there, teach them that it's this whole culture of, you know, the IR doc can't do everything. The technologists know a lot of the equipment and supplies and, and can help manage all of that. And the, and the doctors, of course, are, are training in the hands-on. Um, but what doctors can do is, of course, volunteer, either volunteer with our effort or with, with RAD-Aid or with, um, with uh, Road to IR, any of those efforts. Um, and then I think that we as a community have to come together really and think about, uh, how to establish, you know, uh, perhaps uh, a dedicated interventional radiology um, effort, um, uh, whether it be within the existing organizations or whether it be kind of uh, on our own. Um, and then I think that engage with SIR, the global efforts through SIR, um, the Society of Interventional Radiology here and with the British Society of Interventional Radiology to kind of all come together as a community and recognize that this is a worldwide need. There's a worldwide shortage of access to these services um, and there's the potential for direct impact, both through volunteer work, through um, recycling of, um, you know, of perhaps, you know, expired uh, goods, uh, particularly for the training portions of the program, um, whether it be through engaging the vendors. Um, if you have contacts in industry, you know, I do a bit of consulting with industry. And so uh, that's always something where I'm willing to, you know, contact them and, and try to get them to contribute to our efforts. 
Um, but if people have business sense and, and can think about developing these markets, I mean, this, it's kind of, there's so many different ways in which you can help to build, uh, to build out in these places and to engage. Um, you know, it started for me just being on my own and engaging, but, you know, I think that, um, uh, trying to join existing teams, you know, you're going to have, uh, you're going to leverage your impact obviously. So, um, so, you know, I, I encourage, but I, I think that everyone is going to be, um, involved in whatever level that they're, that they, that, that they're able to commit. And, uh, and so I would say that all of a, all of the above, you know, supplies, equipment, donations, um, working with, uh, getting, getting donations from, from industry along with volunteering of your time and effort, um, and getting your techs and nurses involved. Well, Stephen, this is a remarkable effort. And, you know, just a reminder to our listeners, like, please like, don't hesitate to reach out to any of us. If you need to get in touch with Stephen or, or anyone else involved uh, to look for ways to contribute. And, and Stephen, thank you for joining us to come and talk about this. Uh, and lastly, look for um, IR4Nigeria on Instagram. That's IR4Nigeria. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you so much. <laughs>